Romans 11, beginning in verse 11, God's word says, So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you, Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Most people love a good turnaround story. In the year 2000, the New England Patriots hired Bill Belichick as their head coach. And during his first season, he led them to a disappointing 5-11 record. And as the 2001 season began, they stumbled out of the gate, losing their first game. And to make matters worse, during their second game, Drew Bledsoe, who had just signed a $100 million contract, was drilled on the sideline by Mo Lewis, and he broke a rib, puncturing his lung, and then he was out. They ended up losing that game, starting the season 0-2. And so they started to try to make things happen, but this remarkable story started to arise, and that midway through the season, after game 10, the Patriots didn't lose another game that season, ultimately winning the most coveted prize in football, which is the Super Bowl trophy. Now, some of you are probably annoyed by that, but sorry about that. <laughs> they would go on to win five more Super Bowl championships in the following uh, 17 years, meaning they captured six championships in 18 years, meaning one out of every three Super Bowl championship was won by the New England Patriots. It illustrates a concept of moving from stumbling to victory. Some of us love that turnaround story. Now, Super Bowl trophies, which are cool, do not endure. They don't endure beyond this life. These victories are dwarfed by the victory that God has begun to win and will ultimately declare finally His marvelous salvation will unfold throughout the course of human history. Which leads us to this statement that will govern our thinking for this morning. God is working out His marvelous plan to bring about a massive awakening. Therefore, our gospel ministry is important. 
as we look at Romans chapter 11 and we think through where we've come and where we're headed, last week we covered the first two sections in verses 1 through 6. The main concept was very clear. God has not rejected Israel. God has not rejected Israel. That's the first six verses. Then in verses 7 through 10, this statement is also clear, um, but requires looking and digging into the text. God has hardened Israel who rejected him. God has hardened Israel who rejected him. That's how we ended our last uh, uh, study last week. This morning, as we look at verses 11 through 16, we will notice this. God is using Israel's failures to produce a great awakening. God is using Israel's failures to produce a great awakening. So the first concept we want to notice is this. Israel has failed. Israel has failed. Look at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So we see the clear implications here in verses 11 and 12 about their failure. He uses it in several ways. They stumbled in verse 11. They trespassed in verses 11 and 12. And they had a a failure. They, They lost. They lost. God had laid out the, His plan of salvation for them. He laid out all of His promises before them. And instead of receiving Him, believing Him, trusting Him, following Him, they chose their own way. A question that's vitally important for us as believers and vitally important for anyone that doesn't also know the Lord Jesus as their Savior is what is at the heart of their failure. Why did they fail? Because if we don't see what's at the heart of their failure, we won't be warned and we won't turn from the possibility of our falling in the same footsteps. And so we have to understand that unbelief is at the heart of our failures and sinfulness. A failure to trust God. A failure to believe that His way is best. A failure to understand, listen carefully to this, a failure failure to understand that He is the ultimate treasure or fulfillment of our desires. This really has been at the heart of sin from the beginning. God is the ultimate fulfillment of our desires. He is the ultimate treasure. And yet people, myself, yourselves, we all find other little fancies, other little trinkets, little treasures that draw our attention away. And we choose them rather than understanding what is offered to us in the Lord. And so we, we follow in our own pathway instead of the Lord's pathway. It happened with Satan in the glorious presence of God. It happened with Adam and Eve in the, the garden. And it has happened to many people since. Finding other things more fulfilling than the Lord. 
in Romans 9.31, Paul has given us very clear information that the, the people of Israel did not succeed in gaining a right standing with God because they didn't pursue it by faith. They didn't pursue Him, this right standing with God. They didn't pursue it by faith. They sought another means of of having a right standing before the Lord. And as a result, instead of success and victory, they stumbled, they trespassed, they failed. Unbelief is at the heart of their problem. God warns us in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 12, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. The people of Israel haven't experienced God's rest because of this unbelief. In Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 19, the author of Hebrews writes this, So we see that they were unable to enter because of... What's the last word there? Unbelief. Unbelief. A failure to trust God. A failure to embrace God. A a failure to recognize that God is who He said He is. And that He does what He says He'll do. And that He certainly is the, the utmost desire of the heart of man. He needs to be so. He's the only one that fulfills that need inside of us. This is why we're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 7 that we walk by faith and not by sight. Walk by faith. It's not just a moment of faith. It's not the moment we walk down an aisle. We spend time praying with someone. We said a prayer one time. This is not what we're talking about. We're talking about a day-by-day, lifelong walk with God by faith. It impacts my Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, start all over again on Sunday. It's, it's a life of faith. This is what God calls us to. The second half of Galatians 2.20 says this, the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This is what we're called to do, to live by faith. The life I'm living, I'm not living of my own wisdom. Right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He'll make your path straight. It's a walk by faith. Their lack of faith, in verse 11, led to stumbling. James equates stumbling with being guilty. Their lack of faith resulted in verses 11 and 12 in a trespass. A trespass is a lapse or a deviation from truth or uprightness. So their lack of faith led them to sin against God. And their lack of faith in verse 12 led to failure, defeat, or loss. Loss of what? The ultimate treasure. The promise of God. The promise of giving us all that we need for every day and for eternity. Loss. Israel failed. And this text makes it abundantly clear. But what it also makes clear is that with that failure, there is a very negative consequence. 
there's a very negative consequence to failure. In verse 11, he it poses it in a question having to do with a temporary fall. Look what it says in verse 11. So I ask you, did they stumble in order that they might fall? It's a temporary failure. Because he, he answers the question very straightforwardly, very strongly, very authoritatively. He says, absolutely not. No way that it, this is not a permanent fall. And so that could take a little bit of the pressure off of us. And we could say, oh, all right, so it's not permanent, so it's okay. Now, I don't want to take it too lightly, do you? Why do we not want to take it so lightly? Because while Israel has fallen temporarily, years and years and years and years have passed. That means many have been born and many have died. And to die apart from Christ is to experience eternal judgment. So, all right, he's taking some of the sting away in verse 11 by saying, did they stumble in order that they might fall? And he says, no, 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 no. But don't forget, in the intermediate days between their rejection of Christ and the day that they will be reconciled to Christ in a future day, there are thousands and millions of people that have rejected Christ and gone into eternity without Him. And the result of that, verse 15, is rejection from God. Look at verse 15. For if their rejection, he's equating this rejection with the stumbling, the trespass, and the failure. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean? The concept we're focusing in on for just a moment is the negative consequence of their failure, which is rejection. It's very sobering. But it's very important. To reject God or to disbelieve God results in being rejected by God. To reject God or to disbelieve God results in being rejected by God. Well, what does that mean? What do you mean to be rejected? Well, Jesus paints a picture of it. Take a look, please, with me at Matthew chapter 7. It's very sobering. We're talking about Israel stumbling, trespassing, failing. The result is a temporary falling away and a rejection by God. What does it mean to be rejected by God? Well, Jesus answers that question here in Matthew chapter 7. Look at verses 21 through 23. Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, he is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Will you read the next three words with me? Depart from me. Depart from me. Oh, my friends, I, I don't think there are three scarier words in Scripture. 
depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Please tune your mind in for a moment. Doing things for God is not the same as trusting in what God has done for you. Doing things for God is not equal to, is not the same as trusting in the God who's already accomplished what's necessary for your salvation. Those are two different concepts. So people read that verse and they're like, oh, I don't want to be one of those that, that, that goes before the Lord someday and says, Lord, Lord, and He says, depart from Me. Well, let me give you uh, some insight as to how you can avoid hearing depart from Me while you're saying, Lord, Lord. In the days of your life, your focus is not on what you can do for God, but what He has done for you. What you do for God will never, can never, in any way save you. It doesn't even play the smallest, teeny bit of the process. You cannot gain an inch of stature with God by your actions. Lord, Lord, didn't I, didn't I, didn't we depart from me? Depart from me. We have a little insight into this from one of our hymns, Rock of Ages. Listen to these words. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless. Look to thee for grace. Can you hear the absolute utter desperation of the person penning that hymn? Nothing. I bring nothing worthy to you. I come clinging to the cross where you've done all the work. I'm naked, exposed, and most likely ashamed, but I'm asking you, clothe me. Helpless, I need grace. It is essential that we are ever aware of our desperate need of God's grace to rescue us. This will give us confidence in our salvation as we recognize that it is entirely His work. You don't need to look at Matthew 7, 21-23 and tremble in fear if your faith is in Christ. If, on the other hand, you read Matthew 7, 21-23, and your faith is in you and your actions, you ought to tremble in fear. 
And it should cause you to say, I don't have what I need. And I don't want to hear the most treacherous words in Scripture. Depart from me. And it should cause you to turn from your sin and your way and your thought that you can make yourself pleasing before the Lord. Turn from your sin and turn to Christ to receive from Him true, eternal righteousness and the forgiveness of your sin. This is what it should do for us. But the Jews refused to receive the salvation God offered through faith in Jesus Christ. And the negative results were rejection. This is true of anyone who refuses to receive God's offer of salvation. But, is that the end of the story? The answer is, it is not the end of the story. Head back to Romans 11. The Jews disbelieved. Were they forever condemned? Is that how it turns out? The answer is no. That's not the the end of the matter. It's temporary. It's rejection when a person rejects God's offer of salvation, but God is not done. See, God is so much greater than dependent upon meager creations to accomplish His will. He will not be thwarted in saving His people. He will not be thwarted in fulfilling His promises. He will not be set aside. Ready for this? This is going to be the big wow of the morning. He is God. Do you understand what that means? He's God. He does all His purposes. He fulfills every plan of His. So Paul says in verse 11, So I ask, did they, Israel, stumble in order that they might fall? And the answer is, by no means. Absolutely not. That's not the end of the story. And so we look a little further. God will turn Israel's disobedient disbelief into a marvelous rescue. A marvelous rescue. The first step of that marvelous rescue is this. God used their disobedience to rescue vast multitudes of Gentiles. Look again at verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Look down at verse 12. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Look down at verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world... What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? Can you, you feel the tenor? The tenor is not morbid, dark, and, and, and uh, enshrouded in horror. The tenor is God is working. God is working. It doesn't matter what we see. 
doesn't matter what we think. He's working. He's working in large assemblies around the world. He's working in small assemblies around the world. He's working through one-on-one Bible studies. He's working through some people going door-to-door with evangelism. He even is working with the people that are screaming from the sidewalks with the gospel on, on, on street corners. God's working. He works in orphanages, in nursing homes, in hospitals, on military installations around the world. He works through missionaries. He works through pastors. He works through deacons. And he works through little old believer with no name that no one knows. How do you know? Because God is working. And his will will not be thwarted. Your ministry matters. We're going to get to that in a moment. God used the disobedience of Israel to rescue vast multitudes of Gentiles. We see it in um, wording here, but let's see examples of it in the book of Acts. Two examples. Take a look first of all at Acts 13. So Romans, take a left, one book, you'll find Acts. Acts chapter 13. This salvation of the Gentiles was happening in droves. Acts 13, beginning in verse 38, the preacher declares, Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you, and by him everyone who believes is freed from everything from which he could not be freed by the law of Moses. In other words, he's pointing to Christ. Beware, verse 40. Beware, therefore, lest it be said in the lest what is said in the prophets should come about look you scoffers be astounded and perish for i am doing a work in your days a work that you will not believe even if one tells it to you as they went out the people begged that these things might be told them the next sabbath and after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism spoke, or excuse me, followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, you see what it says? Almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, They were filled with, what's that word? Jealousy. And began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, I am turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord had commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Do you see that God is causing a multitude of Gentiles to come in in the face of the rejection of His people? You see it? 
Offering. Offering. You can be cleansed by Jesus Christ in a way that you could never be cleansed by the law of Moses. And they said, no! Okay, I'm turning. I'm going to go to the Gentiles. And God is saving a vast multitude. There's one little sample. How about chapter 18? Acts chapter 18, please. Just going to grab a little snippet here. From Acts 18. And I'll draw your attention to verses 4 through 8. And it says, speaking of Paul, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was accompanied uh, with the word. Um, Paul was accompanied with the word, or occupied, excuse me, with the word, testifying to the Jews that that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, He shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Together with his entire household. Will you read the end of verse 8 with me? Ready? And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. You see what God is doing through their rejection, the rejection of the Jews. God is bringing in a vast multitude of Gentiles. Now Jesus had foretold this in Matthew 8.11 and other passages, but just notice Matthew 8.11. Jesus says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. You know, this whole thing, as you you go back to Romans 11 with me, please, you've got the rejection of the Jews, but what is it turning out to? It's turning out to riches for the world and riches for the Gentiles. What are these riches? It's the riches of God Himself. Paul, when speaking about his gospel ministry, he was speaking about the fact that he had the privilege and the burden of speaking forth, ready, the unsearchable riches of Christ. You know why? Because God and Christ are the greatest treasure. There's not a treasure you can have that endures. Heaven is not about the streets of gold. Heaven is not about the tree of life that yields its fruit, a different fruit every month. It's not about all the people that have gone before us. Heaven is about the fact that the tabernacle of God is with man. And He will be their God. And we will be His people. Listen, if you don't want God... You don't want heaven. If you don't want Christ, you don't want heaven. The rejection from the Israelites to God resulted in a rejection from God to the Israelites, but that's not the end of the story. It means riches for the world and riches for the Gentiles. This is the first step in that process. The riches offered through Jesus Christ are eternal blessing. The Jews' rejection had a result of bringing about much good 
for many people. You know, it's, it's a change of the story, isn't it? It's a turnaround. God does this with our sin unto salvation. He also does it with our suffering unto glory. I want for you to think about this because you all endure various things. Your story is not my story. My story is not your story. The person in front of you has a different story. The person behind you a different story. It's all different. Don't ever forget this about God's way. He is always aware. He is always at work. And He is always using the circumstances around us for His glory and our good. He turns these negative parts of life and He brings forth glory. This is who He is. So God used the disobedience of the Israelites to bring in a vast majority or vast multitude of Gentiles. There's another step in the process that this text takes us. And that's this. God uses the rescue of Gentiles to stir the Jews to jealousy. Look again at verse 11. Middle of the verse. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. There there are two kinds of jealousy, aren't there? There's a negative jealousy, animosity, scorn, and hatred. And there's a positive kind of jealousy where you see someone accomplish something and you think, wow, that's inspiring. That's inspiring. You know, in the military, as in other circumstances, there are um, reward ceremonies or award ceremonies. Someone did all these things and they're awarded this, this uh, citation and everyone is gathered in, say, a, an auditorium or something and the, the room is called, you know, attention to uh, awards. And everyone comes to attention and everyone's ready and they're listening and all this stuff is going on and usually, you know, the... the commanding officer of the units there, and then the person receiving the citation or the, or the merit uh, award is there. They're standing face to face, and someone is over at a podium somewhere in their speaker voice reading the citation. Blah, 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 blah. Like, and they list all the things that they did. There are various responses to what's going on during that in people's heads, not actual virtual responses. There are some people that are rolling their eyes, thinking that the person doesn't deserve it. There are other people in the room that simply just don't care. So they're not rolling their eyes, but they don't care either. Then there's another group of people that see this and think, yeah, man, that moves me. And they are influenced by it. They're they're. Jealous in a positive way. Jealous to accomplish something. And that's the call here. There's something that's taking place. The Gentiles are receiving the promises that were designed for Israel. And the people of Israel, some of them had the negative jealousy, animosity, hatred, contention. Then there were another group of of the Israelites that are like, hey, that's what it was supposed to be. How do I get on board with that? God was stirring them up. 
one by one to bring them to Himself. God was provoking the Israelites to seek the same riches that the Gentiles were experiencing for themselves. The Jews in this day and age now and in Paul's day and age are one by one provoked to jealousy and God is saving His people Israel one by one. Paul was one of them. God made that come about. They're drawn to salvation through observing the joyous relationship that believers have with God through Jesus Christ. And you know, the next trend in our discussion here in verses 13 and 14, Paul is letting you know that his ministry fits right into this concept. His ministry fits right into this concept. Look at verses 13 and 14. Now I'm speaking to you Gentiles inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews, what's the word? Jealous and thus save some of them. Paul saw the, his ministry as a glorious ministry. I magnify my office. In other words, here I am. I go into this city and I go to the Jews first. They reject me. It it's, it's always happens this way. Then he goes to the Gentiles and Gentiles come to know Christ as their Savior. He is working in them and he's gloriously joyful in that marvelous salvation offered to the Gentiles. But it doesn't just have that one effect. It has the secondary impact of making the Jews jealous. He says, my ministry fits this concept that I'm talking about here very well. I magnify my office. And what, what is this, what, what's the result of it? Why is he so excited about this at the end of verse 14? That I might thus save some of them. Thus save some of them. You know, this is our desire as well. Every day, we hold forth the Gospel of Jesus Christ in our life and with our lips. We proclaim the salvation offered to us through Jesus Christ and we plead with God and man for their soul. We plead with them, right? Turn from your sin and receive Christ. And we plead with God. God, open their eyes. Help them to see. Bring them to life. Help them to trust you. We do this with our words and with our lives. God will bring some to Himself. He will. His Word is effective. His Spirit is active. And His purposes will be fulfilled. This is a fact. So we see our ministry as glorious. We see our ministry as something to be magnified. Not magnifying us. We're magnifying the Gospel. And we know who is the King over the Gospel. So we magnify our ministry. It's not as though we're geniuses or some slick salesman. The reason we magnify the ministry God's given to us is because it's His Gospel ministry. God has taken and will continue to take the rebellion and rejection of the Jews to bring many 
Gentiles to himself and to provoke the Jews to jealousy. But provoke them to jealousy for what? This leads us to our last concept for this morning. It'll just take a few minutes. God will use it all to bring in a massive awakening, a marvelous redemption. It's all leading towards something. Some might ask, Lord, why don't you just bring us right to glory when we're saved? Why not just take us from our sin, save us, and send us on so we don't have to deal with this anymore? Don't struggle with our sin anymore. God is using all of this. He's not done. He's at work. It's all worth it. Look again at the text. Verse 12. Verse 12. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, ready? How much more will their full inclusion mean? Verse 15. For if the rejection, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their exception, acceptance mean but life from the dead? You see this? This is incredible. So God is talking about, okay, here in this time, there's one and two and one and two and one and two coming to know Christ from the people of Israel. But what about that day when God brings about a glorious redemption of the people of Israel? Take a look at the end of this passage. Verses 25 through 29 gives us a little bit of a taste of it. God is going to bring about an awakening like no one has ever seen. Greater in multitude than the great awakening earlier in our history. Verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until... The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion. He will, un, uh, will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the Gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Which gives us a little foreshadowing into understanding what verse 16 means. If the dough offered as firstfruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. That is complicated, but get this basic idea. God started the process of bringing a people to Himself with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's the, the first fruits. Or that's the root. He's not going to not finish the work and get the rest of the lump or the rest of the branches. It's a little bit of a, of a, of a taste. God is working out this incredible um, salvation, this marvelous redemption. And He calls it in verse 15, their acceptance is life from the dead. Their acceptance will mean salvation, life where there was death. We call that resurrection. We call that being 
born again. Spiritual life. Where there was spiritual death. God is going to do this. This is His work. Listen, we look around and we say, I don't know what's going on. Why, why aren't there more? Why aren't there more people coming to know Christ? Why aren't there more Jews coming to know Christ? Why, why, is, why are we not further along? God's going to do this. And He uses you and He uses me to accomplish it. There's life from the dead. This is what it means to be born again. And so I ask you, have you been born again? Have you received from God life from, from the dead? Has he made you spiritually alive so that you know that if you die, when you die, you'll spend an eternity with him? Life from the dead. Has he given you that spiritual life? In our days, God is saving people He's saving them one by one by one by one by His grace. And He's using this salvation to bring in the fullness of the Gentiles. And He's using this salvation to provoke the Jews to jealousy. And He's using it all as a forerunner of bringing in this massive multitude of all Israel that He's going to save. So as we try to make an application of this as we conclude our time this morning, don't Don't lose focus, my brothers and sisters. As we make an application, or a number of them, here's the main headliner of the application. Don't minimize the significance of your gospel ministry. God is using it as part of His marvelous plan that will result in a grand salvation. Talking with your babies, moms and dads, talking with your babies. You know they don't understand. Tell them. Tell them about Jesus. We used to sing to our babies when they were still in mama's belly. Tell them. Tell them about Jesus. Tell them about God. Tell them about God's salvation. And then you've got those little toddlers running around. They don't understand stuff. Tell them about Jesus. Sing to them about Christ. Sing to them about God's salvation. Tell them and tell them. You have your preschoolers. Tell them about Christ. And you have elementary-aged kids. Keep talking to them about Christ. You have teenagers. Keep talking to them about Christ. You have young adults. Keep talking to them about the Gospel and all the parts of the gospel ministry that, that, that God has for you. All of these things from toddlerhood through young adulthood, you're investing in your children. This is all part of that ministry that Paul says, I magnify my ministry. You might have a, a, a place in the Iwana program and you lead a, a handbook group. And there's one or two of them magnify that ministry. You might have a junior church class. Same kids, same kids, week in and week out, month in and month out, for a number of years you have the same group. You magnify that ministry. It's the gospel ministry. God is working. He's working to save people one 
by one. And he's using the salvation that we enjoy and we benefit by to, to provoke other people to come to know Christ. God is using all of these things. You have a ladies' Bible study. Week in and week out, magnify that ministry of using the Word and, and reflecting the Word and loving God and the God of the Word. You, you keep that up. You magnify that ministry. You, you read Scripture, just you and a friend. Magnify that ministry. God's Word is working. Don't give up. These are magnificent pathways of being part of God's glorious, marvelous rescue plan. He is working. His will will not be thwarted. All of your efforts, every single one, He uses. He might not use it the way you intend, the way you expect, the way you hope. He's using it. It's all part of His plan. Talking with your co-workers, writing notes, typing messages on social media that declare the Gospel. These are part of the means that God has enabled for us in this age to be part of the gospel ministry. God is working and he will use it. Do not be dissuaded as you look around. Don't look simply at circumstances and results. Believe what God says. Many are coming to him and many more will through Jesus Christ. Magnify the opportunity to be part God's mission to save people. He will do it. Let's pray together. Father, you know what each one needs. I, I, I don't. I do my best to understand and to try to offer these things. You know and you are effective. And so we pray in each one here that your work and your will will be accomplished clearly, rightly, fruitfully. Help us to be encouraged about your continuous work. In Jesus' name, amen.